Well, we've been in this series through Lent here called Conversations, and we've been talking about the conversations that Jesus has with people. Uh, you know, if Lent is about journeying with Jesus to the cross, uh, then part of this journey is all the people that he stops and talks to along the way. And, um, and maybe if you or I were on the journey toward the cross, we might want to sort of store up all of our energy and say, well, I've got a big day coming up. Oh, I've got a big, you know, I'm like this when I think about a trip or a th- I've got this big thing coming up, so I need to sort of conserve and store up all my energy. But, you know, Jesus sort of does the opposite. Because he's headed to the cross, he lets his whole life be poured out all the way along the way. And so he stops and he talks to different people. And, and, and in the first week of the series, we, we saw him stop and talk to Levi. And you might say Levi kind of represents for us the quote-unquote, the sinner, the one who we are sure doesn't belong in the kingdom. And then last week, we, we talked about Jesus stopping to talk to the Samaritan woman uh, at the well. And, and so maybe she represents for us the rejected, the person whom society has shunned and has despised and rejected. And this morning, if you would turn to John chapter 5, we're going to look at the man by the pool of Bethesda, Bethsaida, there's a couple different ways that pool is, the name of that pool is translated. But this man represents for us the, the helpless, the person who's kind of stuck in a situation and he can't get himself out of it. Um, earlier this week, Evan showed me this, um, this YouTube video of an old mad TV skit. Um, of, a, of a psychologist or, or a counselor where this woman came to him and explaining her problem and, and you know, she would say, okay, this is you know, my, my fear or this is the issue I'm dealing with. And, and he says, okay, well, you know, our session's only going to last five minutes. And he says, I got two words for you. Have you seen this? I got two words for you. And she's, okay, should I write, write it down? He goes, well, it's only two words. Most people can remember two words, you know. And so she's like, okay. And he says, stop it! Stop it! And she, she's like, um, uh, okay, but, but you know, this fear is really gripping and it really ruins my life. And he goes, stop it! And she says, okay. And then he says, well, we haven't used up our five minutes, so uh, anything else going on? And she goes on to say another problem that she's dealing with. And he says, okay, okay, stop it! Now you get the point and it starts to get, get annoying after a little while. I tried to show it to my wife and after a few minutes she's like, okay, stop it. Like it's kind of it's, uh, annoying. Um, but I, w- I wonder if this is how we tend to uh, live as Christians. When we, when we encounter someone who's stuck maybe in uh, habitual sin, uh, or maybe in a certain behavior or a certain pattern or an addiction, and, and those of us who've never known addiction have no idea uh, the complexity of a situation. So oftentimes we talk to a person and we hear about the things they're dealing with and we just look at them and say, well, stop it. Just stop. And I wonder if there's something more to these situations and that, that, that if we really thought about it or looked more closely, we'd realize, you know what, none of us can truly just stop it. None of us on our own can sort of make things change or make things different. Now, I want us to look here at John chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1, because this man lying by the pool can become a picture for us of what our lives might be like. Verse 1, after this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, in the north city wall, is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. It had five covered porches, and a crowd of people who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed sat there. 
Now, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it'll say that there was this verse 4 that, that used to be in there. And some manuscripts, some newer Bibles, kind of, I should say some newer Bibles or translations, remove verse 4 so that it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. The reason is there is this verse 4 that's there in some older translations that talks about an angel that would come and stir up the waters. And so it had miraculous healing powers. The, the, the trouble is that verse was, uh, was added in much later manuscripts, and and our earliest and best manuscripts of John's Gospel don't have this bit about the angel. And so there's a little ongoing debate about about why that verse was added, where they're trying to explain, was it maybe a superstitious belief? Um, Was it just sort of one of those uh, natural springs that occasionally bubbled up? I mean, was it Old Faithful or a geyser or something like that, and it occasionally bubbled up, and and, and so they attached a legend to it? Or was there something legitimately divine about this um, we're not really sure, but it, it seems that in the earliest version of John's gospel, that verse was left out. That's just a little side note for your parties. You know, you can talk about this. Did you know? <clears throat> a certain man who had been there, uh, a certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Now, just a note on this, the average life expectancy for a man in the first century was somewhere in his 30s. And so this man more than likely had been sick longer than most men had been alive. Now think about that. And so here's, here's a man who's been sick longer than most men have lived. And you, you, you have to think that somewhere in the back of his mind is probably saying, why doesn't this just end already? Why is this prolonging? When Jesus saw him lying there, knowing that he had already been there a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? If you're into underlining in your Bibles or highlighting with your fingers on your devices, however you're reading the Bible this morning, you can underline the phrase, and Jesus saw him. Repeatedly in John's Gospel, John's trying to show us that Jesus is taking the initiative with people who are stuck. You remember last week, it was John 4, the woman at the well, and it's Jesus who comes to her. And here again, once again in John 5, here's a man who's laying there. He's been sick longer than most people have been alive. And Jesus sees him, John says. Jesus saw him and came and said to him. The miracle of Jesus initiating movements toward us. And then he asks him this question, do you want to get well? Which on the face of it seems like an odd question, right? I mean, Jesus, are you, you know, isn't this obvious? I mean, of course I want to get well. But you have to wonder if over time what had been paralyzed was not just his body but also his will. And something happens to us when we find ourselves stuck in a particular state. And you can fill in the blank here. Maybe maybe it is habitual sin. Maybe it is addiction. Maybe it's just uh, the the bent of our heart towards selfishness. And we think, you know, this is sort of how I've been. And you know, our, our culture has sort of told us, well, since that will never change, you might as well just accept yourself for who you are. So a culture that doesn't have a transforming gospel at the center of its view of of the world says, well, you might as well stop fighting who you are. Do I want to get well? I'm not even sick. And you should accept that I'm not sick either. And so Jesus' question of do you want to be well really cuts across all of those issues and says, listen, listen, there's clearly something wrong, but, but are, you, are you more than paralyzed in your body? Are you paralyzed in your will? I think there's maybe the difference here between desire and ability. 
And sometimes we'd say, well, I have the desire, like the, like the scripture says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I have the desire, but my ability is not there. I can't seem to snap out of this. Or maybe you'd say, well, the desire is not really there, but the ability is not really there. And I think, truthfully, the honest look at our predicaments without Jesus is that we have a problem with both things. We do lack desire and we do lack ability. St. Augustine in his confessions, you know, he, he, before he came to this faith in, in Christ, he, um, uh, by his own confession, was this promiscuous young man, and, and he famously prayed as a young man, uh, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Chaste is an old word for being um, moral, not promiscuous. Yeah, anyway, so his, his famous prayer in his youth was, Lord, I want to be chaste. I would like to be pure, but, but not yet. And so maybe for us, we're, we're not too different because our problem is both desire and ability. Well, in verse 7, the, man answers, the sick man answered him, Sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. And when I'm trying to get in, get to it, someone else has gotten in ahead of me. You notice that this man doesn't really answer the question. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he says, well, look, I have no one. I have no one who will... Put me in. I have no one who will carry me to the waters. And when the waters are being stirred up, someone gets in in front of me. It's somebody else's fault. It's my own situation. I'm stuck. We'll come back to this statement in just a moment. But there is something good about his confession right here. Because the first thing he's confessing is his powerlessness. The first thing he's saying is, you know, I, I am helpless. Nobody is helping me. If you've been part of addiction recovery groups, you will know that the very first confession is, I am powerless. And it's a confession that really flies against the face, or flies in the face of sort of modern Western culture because we, we, we would like to say that we are anything but powerless. And that if given the right tools or the right technology or the right drugs or the right whatever, we can sort of fly over and, and sort of override any experience. But Jesus knows that the path to healing is not by overriding or ignoring the symptoms of our brokenness, but it's by admitting the depth of our brokenness. Culture says, look, what you need to do is mask the symptoms. What you need to do is sort of ignore it and just maybe, maybe mask it, maybe go see a happy movie, or maybe just go do this, or maybe just do that. And, and that'll just sort of help you get through this or get around this. And Jesus knows that the path toward healing requires a certain rock-bottom place where you say, you know, uh, I, um, I've got no one to take me to the only place that I've thought had any hope of healing me. A couple of weeks ago, if some of you were with us at our Ash Wednesday service. We did it at noon this year. I think next year we'll have to do an evening one as well, so more of you can make it to it. But Ash Wednesday is uncomfortable for, um, for most evangelicals because <laughs> you, you know what is said over you as the ash is made into a cross on your forehead. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And I'll never forget, a couple of years ago, the first time I was, you know, I've been on this journey of kind of re- rediscovering and revisiting some of the ancient practices and worship um, journeys of the church. And, and I, I went to an Anglican church in town on an Ash Wednesday service because we didn't have one yet at the time. And, and I walked up to the altar and the priest did that 
on my forehead. And I sort of knew it was coming, but I, it still caught me off guard. And there was something in me that was like, no, I am not just dust. I am a person of destiny who's going to change the world. And there was something that was just sort of like, how dare you say I am just dust, and to dust I will return. But you know, we will never taste the infinite grace of God until we come face to face with our own finiteness. We'll never taste the infinite grace of God until we come face to face with our own finiteness. And so Ash Wednesday in particular and Lent as a whole is a great time to make this confession. To say, I can't do it all. It bums me out when I see like Christian worship albums you know, with, with, or songs that are like, you know, limitless and I can do anything, you know. That's not what Paul meant, you know, in Philippians 4 where he says, I can do all things through Christ. He didn't mean that like you have no limits. He didn't mean you have no bounds. In fact, what Paul meant is you can go through some very difficult times through Christ who gives you strength. You can be abased and you can abound. You can be high and you can be low. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean this sort of modern Western, um, you know, Nietzschean overman sort of idea of, I am the powerful, I can do all things through Christ. Jesus is not your ticket to becoming the overman. In fact, the only way we can receive the grace that Jesus gives is by first admitting that we're nothing, that we're stuck, that we're powerless. And so then Jesus says three things to this man. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. All three of those verbs in the Greek are in imperatives. They're imperatives. They're these commands. They are this, get up, pick up, walk. Immediately the man was well, and he picked up his mat and walked, and now that day was the Sabbath. Now normally with, with, with stories like this, we want to be cautious about just allegorizing it and just saying, oh, well, imagine this. But, and yet, there is a way to spiritually read the text. And what I mean by spiritually read the text is to prayerfully say, God, let this text read me. You know, sometimes, I, 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 and I'm, I'm a, I'm, I love historical, you know, textual, cultural exegesis. I love all that stuff. But sometimes it can make us kind of stand over the text and be like, okay, let me see, what does it mean here? But to spiritually read a text is to do the reverse, is to sit under it and say, Lord, let your word read me. Let your word read me. What's in my heart? Who am I in this story? Where... And so I, I think if we were to sort of prayerfully let this story read us, we would ask ourselves, who, who are you in this story? Could it be that you are like this man laying by the pool, stuck, helpless, powerless? Could it be that Jesus, the great Savior, sees you? Could it be that this Jesus is saying these same three things to you? Can you prayerfully, even in your heart, see Him and hear Him and hear Him speaking these words to you this morning by the Spirit? Get up. Pick up your mat. Walk. What might those three commands, those three imperatives, what, what could be behind those things? See, get up. Get up is the miracle, isn't it? Well, that's something he couldn't do. So Jesus says, get up. And <laughs> I can't. 
right. But in the command comes the blessing or the miracle. So in Jesus' words are are the same sort of words that says, Light! And there was light. These kinds of, this, this, this word, this command is Jesus being the very word of God who spoke, we say in the creed, who from the beginning created all things. This is that same God, the word, Jesus, the word, who says, get up. And he got up. This is the miracle. Clearly, in the Gospels, not everybody gets healed. And maybe the, the kind of thing in the back of your mind about this story is, okay, well, well, hey, there were others at the pool. Why just this guy? The Gospels are very intent on showing miracles as signs of God's kingdom arriving. God's kingdom is his saving and restoring rule that's coming forward from the future, coming down from heaven, beginning to save and restore and heal. And every miracle is just a sign of that. Is Jesus saying, look, what I'm doing here on the outside is an outward manifestation of the bigger picture, maybe even of an inward picture of restoration. Does that make sense? And so if, if we're, we talk about this text strictly with physical healing, you might, you might say, well, hey, look, not everyone was physically healed. But if we are reading this text sort of spiritually and saying, what is the larger picture that John's trying to show us? He's trying to say Jesus has come for those who can't even help themselves. And that salvation, that restoration is for all. See, physical healing, we may not all taste that here, but Jesus begins to restore this world from the inside out. And so the first taste of restoration that we have is in a restored heart. Is in, a, is in a restored relationship with God, is in sins forgiven, but that begins to work its way outward until the great day in the end when all of creation is restored. This is Jesus giving a creative, restorative word, get up. But then he says the next thing, he says, pick up, pick up your mat. This almost feels like a choice. Get up was the miracle, pick up is the choice. Because now that he has his legs, now that he can all of a sudden move and he has the use of his limbs and he he can walk and he does get up, now Jesus is saying, all right, pick up this mat. What do you think we can see in this? I think there's something in here that reminds me very much of what Paul says in Romans 13. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Imagine a man who all he's known is lying on a mat for 38 years. 38 years. And now all of a sudden he can get up. But his muscles may be weak, his legs may be tired, he may not be sure of another way to live. And so it might be easy to say, well, that's cool, thanks. I'm just going to lay back down for a little while. Just like five more minutes, no snooze button. Like you all were this morning, like we all were this morning. Why did I lose that hour? But Jesus is saying, pick up your map as if to say, don't, make any, don't leave yourself any out to return to an old way of living. Don't make any provision for the flesh. If you make provision for it, your flesh will find a way. But I've given you something miraculous. I'm doing something miraculous in your heart. It's time now to take up the mat. I wonder what that could be in our lives. I wonder what old ways of life 
we've left traces of, we've left mat, mats around. And so I know I'm healed, I know I can walk, I know I, I can move now, but I, that, I mean, it's just, if I keep the mat there, I mean, what's the big deal? And maybe part of this whole salvation journey is not just the miracle of being justified and the miracle of being born again, of being made new, but is also this command to say, all right, having been made new, you need to get rid of some old things. Pick up this mat. Paul says it this way. He says, take off the garments of these things. You were wearing these clothes. Take off these clothes and wear these clothes. And, and, and you know, when you and I think about changing clothes, we, we think about, well, maybe it's because I need to get rid of these clothes. They're too old or they're not in style. But think of it as doing something totally different. Let's say you're getting ready to go scuba diving. You can't put on the, water, the wetsuit over your jeans and flannel shirt. So you can see, take this off, put this on, now you're ready. Does that make sense? There's a certain command here to make no provision for the flesh. Look, in our world, in our society, it's, it's, it's hard to escape the continual bombardment of sexual messages and lust and pornography is all around us. It's, it's easy to access, easy to stumble into easy to follow on a click, easy to stay longer than you should, easy to do all of those things. And, and each of us, probably men in particular, need to think about ways to make no provision for that, ways to sort of pick up the mat and say, well, maybe I, um, maybe I don't need this, or maybe I don't need that. And I, I, I think there's... Um, Rather than feeling, and I think maybe in our, in our world, it's sort of this, we have this illusion that if you're a good, godly Christian man, that you don't need things like covenant eyes or passwords on the internet or locks on the TV channels or whatever, because if you were godly, you wouldn't even need that. And I'd like to say that maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's because we're godly that we're saying, I'm not going to make any provision for this. And so there will be passwords and there will be locks and there will be covenantized and they will be all that and there's no shame in that does that make sense because that's not a statement of like man i'm just such a crazy lust addict that i can't you know control it it's more of a statement of saying since i am powerless and since i have been made new and since i want to take up my mat i'm just not going to make room for this stuff and there's no shame in that fellas there's not i have covenant eyes on my computer when i travel i try to travel with another person uh, we have um uh, we have locks on our TV. Is it because Glenn's such a like pervert? No. It's because I don't want to make any provision for this stuff. And that's me being candid with you, all right? But I think for all of us, if God is transforming us from the inside out, there are certain things we can do to pick up the mat. Is that okay to say? And I, I was talking to someone this week, I said, well, what, what would this be like, you know, for, um, I mean, not to stereotype this along gender lines, but sometimes it does sort of hit men in a different way than it hits women. And, and I said, are, are, is there another version of this? And someone said, well, maybe for women it's, a, it's, a, it's an image thing, you know, or a body image thing, and maybe it's connected to uh, magazines, maybe it's connected to shopping, maybe it's connected to spending, maybe it's connected to more money on more things so that you can look better. And so, you know, it sounds kind of funny to say this, you know, but like maybe there are other 
more innocent sort of magazines and catalogs that you need to put away, you know, like the J. Crew magazines and the Nordstrom stuff or whatever, and say, so, you know, I just want to make because I just I'm going to get in this trap of I need to spend more to look better to feel this way about myself, and maybe it's about putting that away. Maybe it's maybe it's just consumerism in general. I, I think that Patton and I've been talking briefly about this, but I think. Um, during common time, one of the books we might read, and I don't want to force you in the corner of this, but uh, is a book called More or Less. By, uh, I think it's by Jeff Schinnenberger, and it just came out, and, and, and Holly's been reading it and, and really enjoying it, being challenged by it. And it's an interesting thing, even if you took a challenge for a short period of time. Last year, we took a challenge. Um, it was Holly's idea, and it was basically for two months. It doesn't seem like a long period of time, but, but try this. Two months of... Not buy, other than food and groceries, not buying anything new for two months. Not, just not buying anything new. And maybe some of you are like, well, that's no big deal. I can go a year without that. You know? <laughs> for others of you, you're like, two, two months? Like three months? Like that, that? And maybe there are different things in your life. It's not about works righteousness. It's not about impressing God with your piety. It's none of that. It's simply about saying something miraculous has happened in here and now I want to make no provision for my own selfishness and vanity and pride and ego or lust to have expression. Does that make sense? Where are the mats we can pick up? Finally, Jesus says to him, walk. Walk throughout the scriptures in the New Testament especially is a, is a word that is so often used to describe um, a, a, a way of living. That walk, this metaphor of walking is about a new way of living. So you'll see Paul say things like, you used to walk this way, but now walk this way, or walk as children of the light and not of children of the darkness, or all of this stuff. Now, for a person who's never used his muscles in his legs for 38 years, walking is going to be considerably harder, I imagine. Walking is going to be considerably harder. And there is something true about saying that the life that Jesus calls us into is much harder than the life of sin that we were in. It absolutely is. That there's something... In in fact, remember the Bonhoeffer quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's an old way of living that is going to die here. And it, it would be very easy to say, you know what, life was much easier when I was laying on the mat. Now i got to walk? I used to like just wait around for people to bring me stuff or carry me places. Now i got to walk. It reminds me of the story of the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness... What, 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 what would happen if they needed to eat? Manna fell from the sky. And if they wanted to drink, water would come shooting out of a rock. But then they got into the promised land, and what did they need to do if they wanted to eat? Farm. And like dig wells and stuff. And take care of livestock with poop and stuff. <laughs> so it's messier and it's harder. Right. I think we have this illusion, you know, because maybe of the way the gospel is presented. You come to Jesus and everything's going to be easy. Actually, come to Jesus and it's going to be much more difficult at first. Because you're learning a whole new set of behavior. You're putting on a whole new mind. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind is that? The mind that esteems others higher than yourself. Well, that's not natural. Right. And there's this whole thing about following Jesus is much like a new learned behavior 
There's a muscle memory almost, a muscle memory of the heart that is, that is acquired in this. Sophia is, is really getting serious now in her piano lessons, and she's got a private instructor who makes her practice 45 minutes a day or else she's in trouble. You know, it's no more like as long as you got the pieces, because she had enough natural talent that she could learn the pieces and practice one day a week and skate by. But now, like, her teacher will ask her, how, many, how long did you practice each day this week? And it's like, it's getting real now, you know? <laughs> And she's doing these scales and these pieces, and she finds it incredibly difficult because for any of you who play the piano, you know, when you first do your first octave scale and you've got to put your thumb under and all this stuff, it's like, that, that is not natural. You don't go like this and then put your thumb under. Like, why? And she was cheating on it the first few times. She'd go one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, you know? Again, piano players, you know what I'm talking about. And it's... The thing is... The, the path that is easier at first, often will, you'll pay for it later. But if you'll say, well, this is a much harder way to live, and I've got to learn some new behavior, and I've got to, the Holy Spirit has to help me discover a new pattern here, it's going to be much more difficult. But in the long run, it's going to produce life. I think about Dan. Dan, I, every time I think of stuff like this, I think about Dan dragging me out of the house to run. Uh, with him, and he's been gone, so I've been playing hooky on, on running. I'll just confess to you in front of all the church here. I haven't been running. Um, but, but Dan's been taking me on the trail out in the freezing cold. And this is, look, it is hard for me, even though we don't run very much. Like, we run a minute walk, too. What I mean, I know. I know. It's path- I'm pathetic. I know. <laughs> but I'm getting there. I can now run two minutes and walk one. And, you know, yes. <laughs> It's much harder to learn a new behavior. But over time, what's going to save my heart and my health? That. Jesus calls us into a radically new way to live, a radically new way to walk. And it's a totally foreign behavior because what comes naturally is sin. What comes naturally is selfishness. What comes naturally is all this other stuff. But Jesus is saying, now listen to me. You have muscles you never knew you had. And Jesus is saying, look, I have put a new heart in you. I've taken out that old nature. There is now my spirit, my life, my breath. The same spirit who raised Christ from the dead now lives in you. You have muscles you never knew you had. So walk this way, not that way. You can still choose to walk that way. The flesh is always there saying, choose me, choose me. But the Spirit of God is saying, you don't have to anymore. Walk this way. Live this way. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk this way. In closing, the the final thing I want us to see from this text is this man, when he answers Jesus' question about if he wants to get well, he doesn't really answer it, does does he? He says, look, look, my problem is the pool. My problem is I don't know when the water is going to be stirred up. And my problem is when when it is stirred up, no one moves me. And my problem is that when it is stirred up, I can't get there in time. Others get there before me. Can I tell you that this story is really about a dependency issue? And once again, our culture says, oh, the problem with dependency is you, you, you shouldn't be dependent on anything. You should move from dependence to total independence. But the gospel says dependence is the state of being a created human fallen being. You're always going to be dependent. But the key is, are you dependent on the creator and savior of the universe? Or are you dependent on the pool? 
So our human tendency is to look to a created thing to fix a created problem. An old creation problem, an old, old creation solution for an old creation problem. And Jesus is saying you need a new creation solution to the old creation problem. Dependence is correct, but not dependence on a pool. Dependence on me. And the truth for all of us is when you live in a place of dependence, dependence will always create resentment. Dependence on the wrong things will always create resentment. Just like this man was resentful. Well, nobody moves me to the water. And if, if, if you ever find yourself pointing to the reason for your problems as always somebody else, it could be that you have developed a dependence on the wrong thing. And so somebody else is always the problem. Well, it's because they didn't do that. It's because nobody will do this. It's because I can't be helped. It's because... It, look, could, could it be that your resentment toward others is because you've looked to the wrong thing? That an old creation solution will never be the answer to an old creation problem. Only new creation can heal old creation. Does that make sense? And so this morning, we're going to do just the very thing that Jesus has provided for us. We're going to come to his table. We're going to come to his table because we, like this man, can admit that we are powerless. That all the pools of this world that we've tried have not worked. And all of the dependence that we found ourselves leaning on have not worked. Now listen to me clearly here. I love counselors. I, I, I applaud the work. Our family has benefited from the work of counselors. My wife earned her master's in counseling. This is not to say, oh, all you need is the magic wand of Jesus and then you're, you're all better. No. Oftentimes the journey of healing involves other people in other um, thoughtful professions using prayer and using ministry and using counseling and all this stuff to, to, to help us pick up our mats and to help us learn a new way of walking. All of those things. But I think all the counseling community would say, unless something begins at the very root, at the very heart, where we say, I'm going to stop my dependence on the pool, whatever your pool is, and I'm going to turn my dependence toward Christ so that His body and His blood can begin the new creation life in me, and give me my legs back, then there's no point teaching a crippled man how to walk. Something has to change first before all of this reprogramming and re, renewed mind and all of that stuff. Does that make sense? So this is, I, I, I don't know much about that world. My role with you is to start here and to say, can you hear Jesus calling you to the cross this morning? Can you hear Jesus saying, asking you to, to, to leave an old dependence and to confess your dependence on Christ and Christ alone?